Hi, Ed here. Today's conversation is with the author and journalist Michael Calvin. His new book is called Whose Game Is It Anyway? And it's really prescient. It's a look at football around the world. He's been to more than 80 countries. And it's a kind of deep dive into the greed and avarice we see, especially with vulture capitalists like the Glazers and private equity coming into the game. And then contrasting that with community and what the game's really about, fans. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Michael. It's an hour and we go into some really deep topics. Hi, Michael. Um, thanks for joining us today. Um, super, super book. Um, uh, whose game is it anyway? Uh, out now, I believe. And uh, yeah, let's let's start with your take on on what the book's about and um, why you wrote it. And it just seems very prescient at this time. Uh, yeah, it was certainly very personal. Probably the most personal book I've I've ever written, uh, Ed. And um, great to be here, by the way. Um, the uh, I suppose we've all in our various places around the world, or um, it's been a private process, but we've all been through a, I think, a, a degree of self-evaluation over the last year, fifteen months with, with the pandemic, and the book was written at the height of uh, of the pandemic, and I suppose it reflected my mood, and I'd got to the stage where, you know, I've been blessed. Um, 80-odd countries, you know, watched sport at the highest level and it's been, it's enriched me both personally and professionally, you know, sport in general, but football in particular. And on this occasion, it was the death of my father-in-law through COVID. It it sort of gave me a, a bit of a reality check in a way because, as I said, I'd fallen out of love with, with what football had become at the highest level. You know the the hyper commercialization and the the innate corporate cynicism of it all, and um, it took the death of my father and and the reminders of how he uh, how his relationship with his father was fundamental. Uh, it was sorry, it was fundamentally affected by their joint love of football. Uh, there was a bit of a you know a family mystery um, which we. Um, sort of stumbled into after his passing. And uh, I suppose what it did, it reminded me of what football is. And football is family. Football is identity. And it's not anything to do with share prices or pounds or dollars or euros or bitcoins. It's actually, it's flesh and blood. And I suppose that was what, what I'd missed in the whole thing, that... Um, it almost prompted me to go through my own career, my own life, and almost reevaluate or, or reconnect with the the, the the formative forces in, in in me being you know completely consumed by sport and and I say from football in particular. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all had that moment of reflection, as you say, during the, the pandemic, and both like wider, but also. Uh, with our um, our love of football, and my my co-host Paul was telling me he'd he'd almost got sick of watching football without yeah. fans there, and and in the last couple of weeks, fans being back really helped him reconnect with the game again. Because because um, as as the cliche goes, football is all about fans. Mm. Uh, so everyone says, but the recent sort of developments with the Super League seem to suggest that. That football, or at least some football, is fundamentally disconnected from what fans want and love about the game. I mean, how did how did that how did the Super League announcement impact you and your thoughts about the game? Uh, I wasn't surprised uh, because, actually, to be honest, we foreshadowed it in the book. And and and, and the irony yeah. was that the book came out literally the day the day Super League uh, was unveiled uh, in absolute haphazard amateurish fashion, which I was astonished by. It, it is interesting because if you look at the formative forces of, of the Super League, the two main ones are ignorance and arrogance. You know, you've got and oh, yeah. that, that underpins the greed and the elitism. And it's almost, well, I, I, I feel, how dare you? How dare you um, assume to know better than people who 
who commit themselves to the football clubs that somehow you've acquired. I, I find that, you know, and obviously with Manchester United and the Glazers being, you know, principal agitators in that, I, I found, you know, there was a u- almost universal uh, feeling of, of disgust and betrayal that I fully understood because, you know, there's the old phrase, isn't there? You know, be careful because you're stepping on my dreams or right. lest, lest you step, step on my dreams. And this is what these people did, you know. They, yeah. And so I suppose, you know, th- th- there are, uh, we're in the stage now where, you know, my great fear is that there will be real politic will take over again and there will be backsliding. And, you know, in, in the Premier League, there's already a, um, you know, the siren voices are saying, well, we can't punish them too much because, well, we'll punish the fans if we, I don't know, exclude the plotters, the super so-called super six, um, you know, from competition or we take points away. Well, that's absolute disingenuous nonsense because, you know, the, the fans were the ones who were going to be disenfranchised by this thing anyway. You know, and, and, and just the, the language that was used was so insulting and contemptuous you know the legacy fan, Farago, appalling, and and I fully understood why people were incensed by it, and in it, you know, you knew that something interesting was going on because certainly in the initial phases of the resistance to the Super League, it cut across all tribal boundaries. Right, yeah. United fans had common cause with Liverpool fans. Arsenal fans had common cause with Spurs fans. There was this great sense of, look, this is ours. It's not yours. You're you're the custodians, if you like, but it's not your game. You can't do this. We won't let you get away with this. Problem is, they probably will get away with it because... You know, I'm quite pessimistic. That my view right at the start was, well, okay, fine, go your own way. We don't need you. Let's reset. I, I, and and again, you know, when you think about what the pandemic, and it ties in with what we 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 started talking about earlier, the pandemic was a, is it is a time for reset on a personal level, but also on a collective level. I feel in in in, yeah. in football as much as anything else in life because. In essence, sport and society, even politics, has, has accelerated at warp speed over the last 15 months. So basically the development cycle where we might have said, well, okay, you know, I've always looked at football as, as almost like a 30-year life cycle where you... Okay. So if you think of England uh, in the Football League, 1960s was the abolition of the... Uh, minimum wage fast forward 30 years 1992 arrive at the premier league fast forward another 39 30 years or 29 years you've got the um attempt to impose a super league so that's all that's all everything is accelerating but also there's a timelessness about some of the qualities that football that you and i would probably recognize ed um, represent now going back to that whole reevaluation thing about about the pandemic i've i've been very struck but both, both through anecdotal evidence but also like personal experience that people are now looking at football as something uh, a little bit more precious perhaps than it was so let's hope yeah go on no, no, I'm just no. saying, so, let's hope they do. And, yeah. and I hope the football authorities and owners and and clubs um, recognise what supporters felt during this time and what was missing. And um, my the cynical, the cynical chap at the back of my head says they won't. And mm. and it, and all the apologies are, are for show. Well, um, it's, it's, it's the realist and it's not the, it's not the cynic. 
And if you look at it, well, and, and you, you were right to raise the point of, of these, you know, the cyn- the real cynicism was the, the ghost-written, paper-thin acts or, or statements of contrition in the in you know when they realized wow actually we we pulled the tiger's tail here um and frankly these people the glazers fenway the state run clubs man city they forfeited they forfeited our trust right yeah. so if you're in a manchester you're, you're a man united fan june the 4th Joel Glazer is due to, you know, come down from, you know, the, the, the clouds will part and, and he, will, he, will, he will come down from heaven and, and, and talk to the great unwashed for the first time in whenever. 16 years. 16 years. So when, what do you expect? What honestly do you expect? You expect empty contrition, a bit of a bodge job, um, yes, you know we'll have we, we, you know we'll we'll have a supporters representative on the board. Well, you know, is it that's that's basically your token tabby cat, isn't it? That you you know you, you know. So I I think it's interesting. I think they were I think they were they were unnerved to a degree the the Glazers by the by the ferocity of the the, the United resistance. You know, I don't condone the violence at all, but. I fully understood why the fans wanted to make that statement of either going into Carrington, which they initially did, and then obviously yeah. into Old Trafford. Oh, well, uh, the the riot is the is the language of the unheard, isn't it? And um, mm. it, it's kind of interesting because there's been protests for 16 years. I mean, I've stood in a protest. Uh, I haven't breached Old Trafford yet. But, <laughs> you know, maybe driven to it, and it, and and fans set up another club. We yeah. couldn't get more yeah. sort of powerful than that, really. And it still didn't make any difference ever to how they behaved. No, these guys, you know, it's, it's it, you know, essentially what we're dealing with here, it, it, you know, the, the North American vulture capitalist. So it might be the Glazers, it might be um, John W. Henry, it might be Stan Kroenke. Stan Kroenke is a really good case in point. He has made $7 billion dollars because he exploits seven professional sports franchises, got four TV stations, four radio stations, owns four major major stadia. You know, frankly, football is a widget. You know, it's got no no intrinsic meaning to him apart from a way of um, increasing his already obscene wealth. So you know, so these people have got no idea about the culture that they are representing, the traditions that they've inherited. They've got no clue about that. And you know, frankly, if Joel Glazer turns up on June the fourth and goes under the guise of a you know a lifelong Manchester United fan, that's an insult to people's intelligence. Yeah, Charlie Brooks, the the PR director at United, oh. um, said he loves the club, and um, I mean Charlie's had a, a good career, but uh, I, I didn't half feel that he should probably just resign with some dignity after that particular interview. It was appalling. Uh, how it? do you think we got here? You know, a world in which vulture capitalists and private equity, and it's not just the big six. I mean, Burnley, Lille, uh, there's clubs across Europe now mm. have been taken over by people who are looking for a return. Was it was it always inevitable? Is it always inevitable that you know? Because we've had a hundred years of football as a as a, a social club, mm. Spanish clubs, or or um, benevolent dictators, you know, the local businessmen. Mm. Um, that didn't always point to football as a a method for generating profit, but that's where we are today. Yeah, I suppose you know when we look back again, we look back to the thirty year cycle again, and the the Premier League was a self fulfilling prophecy. Because the Premier League was the genesis of the of the of the Premier League uh, was as a result of the same flaws, the same philosophies that underpin the, the Super League, i.e., greed and elitism. So, of course, it's no surprise, you know, and you know, within the book, you know, 
there was a, at the start of the the season, which has just ended, I went to Accrington Stanley, and I, I've got a real soft spot for the the owner there, Andy Holt, who's a you know self self made millionaire, and he made he told a story then which I thought was really quite revealing, where you know Andy's background council house kid from Burnley, never had a TV. He used to have to walk down into town to watch the FA Cup final on the on the right. TV in front of the, in, 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 I think it was Rediffusion in the, those particular days. Um, slept on cardboard boxes in his garage um, because he had a temperamental um, sort of plastics type machine. Uh, I'm not techie on these things, so uh, I'm probably doing a a misjustice on that. But there there was a real sense that here's here's someone who basically took over his football club because it was a gesture towards the town and the community. He understood its intrinsic value. Uh, He's now worth between 60 and 80 million, which the Glazers of this world don't get out of bed for, do they? Um, and uh, that gave, gives him a sort of certain social cachet and an entree into an area of, of society or, or business life. And there was a private members club in London, one of these places which you know there's there's just no sign on the wall. It's, if you know, if you know, you know. And uh, he was with uh, a group of leading retailers, and one of them asked him. Uh, do you like art? Uh, and he said, "Well, yeah, I've got a few paintings on the wall, you know, but nothing special. I've got one from the local antique shop." And and this guy said, "Well, yeah, I, I bought I bought a painting last last Tuesday, and it cost me twenty three quid." Now that painting was by Pablo Picasso, and it cost him twenty three million quid. Now these guys use a quid as shorthand, verbal shorthand for a million pounds. Right. Okay. So Andy's point pertaining to football is these are the type of people who are running major football clubs in the Premier League. They've got no, you know, they're gauche. You know, they've they've got no idea of, of value. You know, they don't give a damn about anyone else apart from themselves. You know, they've all got their little private societies and their little private ego massaging, you know. So I thought that was really, you know, really quite revealing that look, these are the, his point was, and it was, it was a prescient point, these are the type of people, not these retailers per se, but these are the type of people who are reshaping or attempting to reshape modern football and modern sport. And we've got to fight them. I'm I'm kind of interested on that that point about fighting because of course you know there's been demonstrations at Chelsea and Arsenal and mm. at United and uh, I don't think this one will burn out quite as quickly as as some of them have but to to really change the power structure it might might need government intervention yeah. and and Gary Neville and others have called for a, an independent regulator and there's the task force that's being led by Tracy Crouch who does know something about sport um, at least um, I'm not sure her co-panelists really do but no. I mean you you've you've um, you've been down the street um, I think in the time of Thatcher and yeah. and talk to government do you, do you have any hope that government might get find an answer here or some kind of safety net you know, it is interesting. You know, I, I'd say you're right, Ed. I do go back to, to Thatcher. I worked with Tony Blair. Helped helped him set up a a sports foundation. Um, you know, my experience of politics. I, I gave up. I had a sort of three year sabbatical from writing to to help set up an organisation called the English Institute of Sport uh, with uh, Steve Cram, the Olympic uh, runner, um, and. Uh, we looked after about 36 Olympic sports. And that, working on the inside, as it were, for two or three years, it just showed you, one, how, you know, the, the hypocrisy was off the scale. You know, we were working in the Olympic um, side and, um, you know, looking after these 36 different sports. The mediocrity of the people within it was was mind-blowing. 
And um, I think that's probably reflected in the makeup of um, the committee or the fan-led review that, that we're talking about. It's, yeah, it's, it's worth these. There's very little practical on the ground experience. They're the type of people who get chosen for these types of roles. Yeah. You know, they won't turn up with a hand grenade in each pocket. Let's put it like that. They're going to be pretty compliant. I suppose it boils down to, you know, we've got a, you know, a far, you know, we've got a right wing populist government in the UK, which is driven by, by news management. Yes. If if football helps them, if if, if football is a you know gives them access to um, easy headlines, if it gives them access to um, a a demographic that might be politically useful, yeah, maybe they'll do something. Or, you know, but you know, let's not have any um, illusion about this. The, it, the they won't be they won't be operating on any um, any principle apart from self interest. Now, you might say, "Well, okay, that's always been the way of the world, so therefore, let's get what we can out of the process." Um, I think the idea of it, the idea of an independent regulator is something I've believed in for for ages. You know, you look, you know, you're in the states, Ed. You look at you look at the way that North American sport is generated by, you know, the commissioners. I think, I think it's, I think that's long overdue and it was equally significant that, that Richard Masters of the Premier League, one of the first things he said was we don't need one. Well, frankly, we do. Yeah. I, I do always wonder with regulators, I mean, how their their scope and their role is is important. So regulators tend to level the playing field. Now that can be between the demand and the supply side of a market, or the supply and the supply side of the market here. And and actually in football, it's probably both that we need. So mm. you know, equitable distribution of money the game produces that has to come with financial controls, I assume. Um, but also. Uh, looking after the the needs of the demand side fans mm. um, as well, and and that's that's what worries me a little bit about a talk of a regulator in that the people setting up might not quite understand all the drivers and and mm. what each side's needs, and and it could it could be a case of be careful what you wish for. Yeah, but it's also I think I think it would be very di- very difficult to. Um, game the system so that we had a system which is worse than it is now. True. You know, and, you know, if you, if you look at, um, you know, what, what are the principal, um, areas of, of, uh, you know, what, what are the priorities that, that, that we need to address? I think we, we need to address the nature of ownership uh, the financing of that ownership, you know, because if we go right back to, you know, never forget that it was the Premier League who sanctioned the leverage buyout by the Glazers of Manchester yeah. United, which, you know, in hindsight was one of the most damaging acts in recent football history. Yes, that and uh, MK Dons. Yeah. Uh, which they kind of rolled back from that. I mean, I, don't, I guess it wasn't the Premier League per se, but uh, football mm. authorities, so... Um, and and I wonder I wonder whether the the authorities now will roll back from where they've got to, but I don't know. I wonder whether it's gone far too far, too many mm. owners with interests that aren't in the the best interest of the game. But but also, you know, the, you know we all know that the the, the so called fit and proper directors test is is literally not worth the paper it's written on. Yeah, you know, because you it, it's and it's so open. You know the. the the only cheap thing in modern football is a headline. So you're um, Daniel Ek of Spotify. You, you launched what, to me, looked right from the outset a pretty cynical PR stunt. 
oh, yeah, he suddenly becomes this lifeline Arsenal fan. I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy out the Cronkies. I'll, I'll, I'll turn up at the Emirates in a on a white charger or whatever down the A1. Well, you know that died a death pretty quickly, didn't it? And I suppose also, even if that had gone ahead, what you've got there, Daniel X's business model is an innately exploitative model. If he pays, I don't know, whatever they would want, $3 billion for Arsenal, let's say, just plucking a figure out here, he'd have to make the books work. He'd have to protect his own investment. So anyone with those that business model, by definition, is a bit of a vulture capitalist himself. So, you know, you're not going to get any different. You know, he's basically, you know, he's basically Stan Kroenke with you know, musical accompaniment, you know. Yes, as, as I'm sure the whole, mu- well, I know the whole of the music industry, at least the artists um, basically believe, you know, they yeah. he's exploited them, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to change tack just a little bit. Mm. I mean, you, you talked, you've touched on um, athlete activists before, mm. and, you know, there has been something that's changed there, yeah. at least at least in the UK, um, with Marcus Rashford and Jordan Henderson. I noticed both of them were on the uh, list of the top 10 largest uh, philanthropic givers. They've raised a lot of money between them. Yeah. R- Raheem Sterling. Um, I, I don't imagine that um, footballers will push for change in ownership. <laughs> I can't see that. They're biting the hand that feeds them there. But but that, that something has changed in the nature of the platform that footballers have and how they use it. Absolutely. And you know, when you, you know, I've been around a few years, so my sort of touchstones, I suppose, always been, um, if you look at athlete activism, you, know, you, you, you immediately alight on the States or North America. Yeah. So, you know, from Tommy Smith in 68 to Muhammad Ali with his, his, his you know, pacifism and you know, the, the um, Vietnam um, war protests, right through to Colin Kaepernick, uh, LeBron James was active in the presidential election. But it is, I thought it's really marked. And it's, this is how hapless our government was. You know, at the start of the pandemic, they thought it would be a nice, easy play uh, to come up with these sort of tired old nonsense about wastrel footballers and multimillionaires don't care about the world. But actually, they do. And the dichotomy is that people like Rashford, um, players of that stature and youth, are on the one hand commodities in essence they're chief executive of, of their own multinational corporation yet on the other hand football in terms of product the player product tends to come from still the working class communities so if you look at uh, at Rashford as a good example Raheem Sterling uh, came from the estates um, no strangers to, to social difficulty. Each was brought up by a single mother with, with huge moral strength and instilling the right values within them. And they basically, they've done their mothers proud, frankly. And if you're looking for compassion, if you're looking for empathy, you no longer find it in the political sphere. Strangely, in 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 a in a sport and an industry, you know, football's a people business which treats people really badly. But yeah. but strangely, um, those type of the example that that is set by those sort of guys is is really compelling. Now, whether that will uh, translate into the systemic change that we need, you know, I doubt. I doubt it, if, if I'm honest. But what I think it also does do, it just, it's a bit like a painting. You know, you've got, you've got this image in front of you, and, and basically what we've got at the moment is that people are adding their own little touches, their own little nuances. And, you know, I, I, I look at the mood set by the Rashfords of this world, you know, there was an innate goodness about what that was, you know. 
How, how, can, yeah. how can you argue against someone who, who raises all that money, embarrasses the government on a, on such a fundamental issue as as childhood poverty? Now, well, so, some did try to. Well, they did. Yeah. I mean, there, there was a very cynical take as well on that. Yeah, but so if so, if you look at it from from that point of view, and then look at the macro picture, which you know, going back to what we said right at the start of the show, and actually has been a bit of a theme that things are changing spiritually, if nothing else, in, 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 in modern life. And why should then football be any different? Because I've been really struck over the last you know, few months that people are um, almost deconditioned to football now, certainly at the highest level. I think you're right. You, know, you talked about Paul basically thinking, oh, not another game. Well, that's pretty common. Yeah. That's been pretty common. Right. Um, you know, because you've got to go, and, and there is a, a bit of an emptiness about, about the season in terms of, well, it was played in a void. It was played in a yeah. void to avoid. All product, no experience. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Spot on. And um, it was, that void was a, a reflection of how much we did miss f- fans. Excuse me. Um, you know, the last two rounds of fixes in the Premier League proved that. Um, but during pandemic, I did a film for BT Sport called Hours, which was actually generated right. generated by one of the chapters in in whose who's game is it anyway, where you went to Bury, and obviously they've lost their football club. And I always wanted to find out, right, what's it like to lose your football club? Right. You know? And um, I suppose you know, listeners to this podcast will probably ident- you know, identify with FC United of Manchester because you know that same sure. sort of thing happened, didn't it? In, in, in not in not in as physical terms of United being kicked out of the league as Barry did, but we saw this guy called James Bentley, um, and just things sli- slotted into place perfectly because um. I'd never heard a fan talk so eloquently and passionately about, you know, just the fundamental um, process of, of, of football, almost forming the, one of the, you know, the, the soundtrack of his life, if you like. And uh, we were on a on the platform, platform two of a place called um, uh, Bolton Street Station in Bury, which is where where the um, uh, the steam trains come in, they go down the valley. And it was Saturday morning. I was going to see the, the Phoenix Club, Berry AFC, in the afternoon. Yep. And, you know, when I, when I asked James about um, you know, what, he, what, what, what it felt like, he knew to the minute when, that phone, when he got the phone call that Berry had been kicked out of the league. And for 15 months, or certainly just over a year, he just... He went headfirst into an emotional abyss. He couldn't face football. He didn't want to watch it. He didn't want to read about it. He didn't want to have a bet on it. Um, and while we're talking about betting, I think that's one of the one of the real issues that need to be sorted out as well. But we're digressing. So you know, he he talked about ritual and routine, knowing. Each paving slab uh, you know, in his in his walk to the ground, yeah. knowing that routine was, you know, going to his mum and dad's, having a um, you know spot of lunch, watching football focus, getting the cab at one sixteen, going to the local Conservatives club for a drink ne- near Gig Lane. Family identity, and even where we were talking, it all made sense because. Bolton Street Station, the Berry team that won the 1903 FA Cup at uh, Crystal Palace, they left for Crystal Palace from Bolton Street Station. That team is still enshrined in 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 local folklore. Yeah, they all know that it's 118 years, but that team is timeless. It's a source of enduring civic pride. So there's your identity. Also on that platform, 
James's great grandfather, that was where he left to go for, to war in the First World War in 1914. He came back in 1919 after having been taken prisoner in, in Germany. Indirectly, his great grandfather got him, got James involved in football because it was passed down the generations. The love for the game, the commitment to the football club was passed right down to James, who's now 40. And that's family. So yeah. all these things slotted into place. And I went to see Berry AFC that afternoon. And it was a socially distanced crowd of, well, it was meant to be socially distanced, but when they scored, they were jumping up and down like you wouldn't believe anyway. There was 150 people there. And again, just more pieces of the jigsaw came in because, you, you know, friends there had been obviously distanced, one, by losing their original football club, but two, you know, because of the pandemic. So maybe they hadn't seen one another for three months. Yeah. So they're having a beer, and one of the joys of non-league football is you have a beer and you put it down on the on the wall that surrounds surrounds the ground. So there was this great sense of reconnection, but also, you know, I'm, there's this little non-league ground, and it had the feel of a much much bigger stage. Yeah, it had the feel because there were little indications of normality like in one corner there was a bunch of scallywags trying to jump over the walls to get in for nothing now i did i did that as a little kid uh, at watford i used to go i used to bunk in via the allotments which used to be at the back of the ground you know we, I, I saw a little girl behind one goal and um it's at half time and i sort of nudged the camera and i said gotta get out and there was this girl, basically, you know, she had a hot dog, <laughs> which basically, you know, was about, about half her size. It was massive. but in, <laughs> So there was, like, you know, ketchup going everywhere. I identify with that. Yeah. As, yeah. You know, I'm, you know as, as a fan, I think every fan would identify with that. So I, I think it's those, those routines you talk about are, are really important. And, you know, the walk to the ground, the, the chips and gravy, the beers, uh, where you sit. Um yeah, uh, I when I first started going to Old Trafford, it was, and you wouldn't believe this because I'm, I'm not that old, £1.50 to get into the Stretford End, the little token wow, ripped it really? out of the book, everyone will remember. And um, yeah, it, it just, yeah, you, you could sit in the lower, stand in the lower tier or sit just above, you remember. Yeah, you yeah. Just make an yeah. awful racket on the sort of metal fencing around there. Um, and th those things are important. I, I know this week, and I digress a little bit, that. Manchester City are kicking, I think, a couple of thousand fans out of their seats and that kind of thing. I think I think owners and administrators don't understand how disruptive that is. You might have sit, sat next to that person for mm, yeah. 20 years or something and, and they're doing it because they want larger advertising hoardings. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not having to go at Manchester City per se there. That's happened at many grounds. It happened at Old Trafford too. And yeah. they, they kind of forget think, how think important those Liverpool. little things are. Yeah, I think, right. I think it happened at Liverpool as well. But it is, again, it, it is just another indication of this arrogance and ignorance that, that is running our major football clubs. That um, you go into a modern stadium. I had a, had a conversation with um, a friend of mine who's a West Ham fan um, a couple of weeks ago. He's just moved home and we were talking about, you know, the last two rounds of matches, you know, would he go, if he could, to... Uh, the London Stadium or the Olympic Stadium, as I prefer to call it. Um, and he said, well, probably not. I said, well, why? And he said, well, if you think about it, uh, to take my lad down to London on the train, a few beers beforehand, um, maybe a bite to eat, it's going to cost me £250 for the two of us. Now, I'll go to the little... The, the non-league ground, um, you know, two streets away where I've just moved, cost me six or seven quid to get in. I can have a beer. I can take my beer around the ground. I can change ends at half time like I used to as a kid, you know. Mm -hmm. Why do I need to watch my team in a soulless stadium, which, like so many stadiums, are essentially they've got the feel of a 
a shopping mall. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, well, you know, Manchester United is probably a case in point, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's a very old shopping mall that's falling to pieces in <laughs> yeah. in, uh, in the case of Old Trafford. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I really dislike but, the modern Solar Stadium. Wembley's the one I hate the most. It yeah, me too. It feel like a football ground. It's not. I, uh, and it's, you know, I just don't, I just, you know, I think we can laugh at the whole theatre of dreams bit, but, you know, venue of legends, you know, it's just all empty nonsense. It's empty rhetoric, isn't it? Wembley, I... I I just, yeah, it's it's just it's just a it's just a sort of soul. It's a mausoleum. It's a modern mausoleum, and sure, yeah. Um, but it, the, you know, the principle applies. Um, don't treat a supporter as a supporter. Treat him or her as a consumer, and soak the computer, uh, con- consumer. You know, charge them eight quid for a hot dog or nine quid for a hot dog or whatever it is. Um, it was interesting on that on that trip to Accrington Stanley. The manager there, um, uh, uh, John Coleman, um, I was chatting with Andy Hull in uh, Cody's office, which actually is a port cabin, um, right. just before the game. And and he was saying, well, look, you know, the difference is you have a pie and a pint. You know, when, when fans are allowed back in Akron and Standing, you have a pie and a pint, and um, the pint will cost you three quid, and uh, the pie will cost you two quid. So say for a five, you get a pie and a pint. So I go to Liverpool, the pints, seven quid, the pies, four quid. It's not a better pie. It's still bog-standard Heineken lager. Yeah. What's the difference? The difference is Liverpool have got a captive audience, Akron and Stanley don't. And bigger clubs exploit that. But, Beware what they wish for, because I think you can only go so far in, in in pushing fans into the mindset that they're tourists or that they're 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 shoppers. And what I've always admired about Man United fans is is you know not so much the the old Trafford home ground at home games because you know you can't you can't move for tourists. In a, in, oh sure, right? yeah, yeah. It's changed incredibly the character over the last yeah twenty five years. But the character hasn't changed with the United's travelling fans. That's right. Yeah, and you know, from you know when I've ever seen seen them, they've always impressed me hugely with their you know their their ferocity of commitment to the team. You know, they turn up in huge numbers in the away grounds. They're the true fans. Yeah, they don't. you'll um, I, you'll know Dan Harris, I'm sure, who um, written several books yeah. and, and writes for the Guardian and others. And he spent many years refusing to go to Old Trafford and only travelling to away games. And partly it's atmosphere, and partly it's a, a message to to the owners about you know what what um, they've done to the club. Mm. I, mean, I mean, I think you know, in a way, yours is an optimistic book too. I mean, we've like I think it's quite a sort of. You know, I think we're both fairly cynical about the game. Mm. Um, this conversation's reflected that in a way, but but yours, you know, you, the title of your your book is "Whose Game Is It Anyway?" and, and you answer it. You know, it's the fans' mm. game, and there's mm. some optimism in that mm. and the power that fans have to to make the change they want to see. Yeah, because I think more people will do what you know my, my West Ham friend friend has done, and I think they will go down to either lower league or non-league football. Uh, that might be through an economic circumstance, because if you look at the season ticket prices now, they're obscene in some cases, and and imposed without without any conscience or clarity. It's just take it or leave it. We've got a waiting list. Yes, right. So, uh, and what I tried to do in the book was, you know, I went through. Yeah. I'm very fortunate in terms of you know the people I've met, the the experiences that I've had. Is, you know, I've been blessed. That enabled me to give some context to why I fell in love with the game, and, and, and but what, what also what life experiences you can get from it. Uh, but also, it then basically the last third of the book, maybe just over, maybe last half, I was consciously looking for reasons to believe and what did strike me is that there are an awful lot of people out there 
doing good work in a pretty demanding environment. Um, you know, to quote Gareth Southgate, great game, shitty industry. And it is. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're, they're in, in that, an owner like Andy Hull, the whole Berry AFC experience, looking at other fan-led or, or fan-influenced clubs, you know, the conscience model of, of Lewis FC, in- yeah. institutionalised equality, equal pay for men and women. Um, there were so many sites. AFC Wimbledon, it's a fantastic story. Yeah, and it really uh, is. You know, I... I, I uh, one of the... Well, actually, it was, it was a really good... When we were when we were film, we were filming in the pandemic towards the end of the year last year twenty twenty, and uh, when we went to uh, AFC Wimbledon, we were there on the first training session of the players, and uh, I was with a guy called Ivor Heller, who was one of the driving forces right from day literally day one. Little little guy who calls himself the Flying Satsuma because when <laughs> when he um, uh, when they have their halftime entertainment, uh, he goes in goal. Because they, they do this for a local um, charity which looks after uh, you know kids with um, you know who are economic uh, uh, who are intellectually challenged, uh, and so he's the goalkeeper and of course he's diving over the ball and everything else. Lovely guy, and he, you know he looked around and said, "Well, this place, this is his new stadium. The fans have funded it all. This place is fueled." By righteous indignation, right? And well, let's look around at the game. What else can we change with righteous indignation? That's what I would say to, to people out there. There are good people out there, and you know, there's a chapter I, I, I did called "Who Cares for the Carers," and I purposely wanted to refocus on player welfare or the aspects, especially at the uh, of, of young younger kids. And there were, there were two, two guys that I highlighted, a guy called Tony Robinson, uh, whose son, Anthony, plays for Fulham, an American international. Um, I knew Anthony when he was about 18 months old, and he was the mascot of one of my son's youth football teams. And he, you know, it was an all-conquering team. Um, you know, they didn't lose a game for a year. I, I, I came across looking at my, my son's old bedroom, uh, a sort of deflated football, where all these kids, uh, they're under 12s at the time, had signed their names on the ball because they won the league by a gazillion points. And uh, Tony was the best coach, one of the best coaches I've ever seen. And he never got anywhere near professional football because he didn't, blow smoke up the right backsides. And he, he actually right. wasn't, didn't, he refused to. Didn't play the political game. He was too honest and, you know, wasn't, wasn't going to play, you know, didn't want to get in, involved in cliques or anything like that. He purposely distanced himself from his son's career. Um, but what he did do when he moved back to Liverpool, which is, um, although he's, he's American, he, 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 he he went over to America when he was 13, um, played soccer for Duke University and became an American citizen, hence Anthony playing for the US. Right. And um, he basically um, focused on the kids who'd been let go from professional academies simply because those coaches and administrators in those academies could not cope with kids from challenging backgrounds. You know, the, the biggest dates, they just couldn't get, you know, they thought these kids were uncontrollable. He's got 19 of those kids now into the US on scholarships. He's given them a life. Now, I think that's an amazing achievement and, and, and something that that gets lost quite easily. And the other chap I, I look at in the chapter, he has, has featured uh, before in a couple of, well, certainly one of my books, No Hunger in Paradise, called, a guy called uh, Pete Lowe. Very successful youth coach at Oldham and Manchester City. Um, got into player welfare. And it was just before the pandemic, he um, 
he called me and said, look, I've got someone to get off my chest. You, you fancy getting together for a cup of coffee? And so we, we met uh, in a golf club just outside uh, Manchester, just south of Manchester. And he basically started telling me about the story of a, uh, he had a phone call from a father who, who was obviously distressed. He'd found his son, who'd just been released from a Premier League academy, uh, in the garage of the family home, uh, preparing to try and take his own life. And as, as um, Pete says, you know, when you get that phone call, what do you do? What, what can you say? Um, but it is interesting. So that then sort of morphed into a, a discussion on the pressures on, he said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm known as a problem solver. Well, who's going to solve my problems? And he was very open. He said, look, in the end, I had a breakdown because of it. You know, he, to he told of, you know, seeing sort of 12, 13-year-old kids. There was one in particular who was hyperventilating. He was so upset, he couldn't get his words out. It took him 10 minutes to speak. And he'd been bullied by a coach at the academy. That's, that's how it all transpired. Right. And, and he... And he and, yeah, you know, Pete made the point, uh, really prescient, terribly prescient point. He said, one day we're going to wake up and read our newspapers or scroll down our phones or listen to the radio and we'll hear or read of a young lad who's taken his own life because football was no more for him. And, you know, that happened, that transpired at, at Manchester City with um, Jeremy Whiston. Um, so... I wanted to celebrate these guys and actually you know, because they are dealing with the, with the rawness and the reality of modern football where, you know, Pete talked about another lad, a really promising player who was right on the verge of doing what he'd always wanted to do, i.e. play first team football. He's only 17, 18. Had gone through the academy, through the, and play, was playing for the 23s, just, getting, just beginning to get on the bench in the Premier League. And he talked to him and he said, he said he was full of fear and he likened walking down the tunnel to being in his own coffin. Right. So when you get the, you know, that extremity of emotion, you think, my word, what is this game doing to people? Um, so that's why I wanted to celebrate people like Pete and Tony because no one really knows about them, frankly, probably no one apart from the family is concerned, care about them. But I think we should celebrate them massively because they're the people who keep the game ticking over. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, exactly. It's part of the, the real tapestry that, that is football. Mm. Okay, well, look, this has been a, a really fascinating conversation. Um, Whose Game Is It Anyways? The book, um, available in independent bookstores and the big behemoth uh, <laughs> as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking the time. Um, best of luck with, uh, with the launch um, of the book. And, um, yeah, thank you. Thanks, sir. No problem.